Hi there, welcome to Glenlyden Baptist Church's podcast network. We're glad you can join us today. If you'd like more information on the church, please visit us on our website, www.gebc.org.nz. We hope you enjoy the pod. Yo, how's everyone doing? Cool, cool. Hey, um, I'm going to start with a story like I often do. And um, I think I, I shared this one at Vision West, uh, one of our gatherings one time. Um, but it's just a story. And now a few of the staff members and Vision West staff are worried that I'm going to share the story about the clogged shower drain. Um, but I'm not. So you're lucky. Um, great story, though. Hey, so when I was in college... Um, I got to the end of my year nine year, and we had this, these award ceremonies that we were compulsory. You had to go to them. Um, but I always thought, man, I, I want to I wanna be on stage. I want to get something. I wanna, I'm good enough. I'm good enough to get to the end of, end of my college career and, and win something, right? And there's the sports awards. Now, I was slow, and I wasn't allowed to play rugby, uh, so sport was out. Um, there were the Intelligence Awards, and I probably could have worked for that, but that would have meant that I would have to work for that, so that was out. <laughs> then there was the Teacher's Pet Award, uh, sorry, the, the, the classroom, uh, classroom Cup or something like that. I actually won that in Year 12. I think probably it was also the like, Brown Nose Award, you know, so that's, you know, I did one year of that and that was fine, but, but the Performing Arts Evening. The, the night to celebrate all nights. The, we all dressed up. It was glamorous. And I was like, I want the performer of the year. And, and, and I had a good start because I was invited to the worst one. I'd, I'd won the most promising debater award um, in year nine. Um, a, a formal award as well as how promising I was in debating with my teachers. Um, so I took that. I started taking minor roles in, in the drama productions. I, I took Shakespeare productions. I took drama class and started working on um, greasing up that teacher as well. But I knew there was something missing. There was something missing that I needed. Because year 13, we had two productions. We had the Shakespeare production and we had the school musical. And, and to get a lead in a musical, you need an ability to sing. What are you laughing at, Gaz? And, 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 and I knew, like Gary, knew that I had no ability to sing. And so I, I, I took lessons. I started in year 11 because you've got a plan for these things, right? I started to take singing lessons and it was really awkward and I sucked, which is why you have three years to build up to it. But then some other guys started joining in the singing lessons, and we, and we had this little, uh, little boy band, really, a little, little guy group, and it was, it was fun. Um, and we sometimes got to sing with the really good female singers um, at some of the like, singing evenings. They made us dress up and wear blazers, and all us guys just lip-synced because we couldn't, you know, we weren't as good. But we were learning, we were, we were practicing, and, and then the start of year 13 happened, and they announced what the musical was. And the musical was going to be The Wizard of Oz. And so I learned the Scarecrow's songs. I learned the Scarecrow's dance moves. I was significantly smaller in college, so a little bit more Scarecrow-shaped than I am now. But I, I learned it all, and I had my audition song, uh, which was Oh, What a Beautiful Morning from Oklahoma. And so I'd practiced this 
all year. This is my song for, for, the, for the year, and, and I've been learning it and practicing it. And the morning of my audition, the morning of my audition, I went to just, just tune up the vocals, you know, just what the worship team does on a, on a Sunday morning or a Thursday evening. They, they come in and they practice. And so at 11.40, I walk into the, the uh, music room, and I just sing it with my uh, music teacher, and I, I nailed it, absolutely smashed it. And I, was, I walked out of that room feeling so confident, so confident walking to my audition, which was the only audition that mattered because I'd nailed the acting ones. And I, I walk out the door, and, and it's 100 meters. It's 100 meters from this room to the next room. And there's a girl standing outside the door. And as I walk out, she said, is that your audition song? That sounded expletive awful. And it took four words to burst three years. Four words that caused three years of work to disappear, right? I felt embarrassment, I felt doubt, and I felt shame. And I don't remember the walk to the drama room, but I certainly remember standing in the drama room, and they're like, right, start your song. Nothing came out. And can you sing happy birthday for us? Nothing came out. They, they, they pulled out the piano and started hitting a key. Just a key. Can you, can you sing this key? I got this minor singing role in the uh, Wizard of Oz. Uh, I, I got to be the guy who yells out that there's a hurricane coming. I didn't win that award that year. I had been confronted by one person bringing me four words that caused embarrassment, doubt, and shame. I want to spend a little bit on, on what's happening this morning and what happened last week. What has made us put our walls up, but even more, what stops us bringing our walls down? What prevents us from sharing, from being open, being who we are, or from confessing where we struggle and where we need help? In our culture, one of the biggest factors that prevents us from admitting our struggles, from getting help with our struggles, from moving forward with and through our struggles is this concept of shame. We all know shame. We have all experienced shame. It may be from something like the experience of my high school story, or it might be an internal feeling we have after we've done something wrong. It might be that we know the person that we want to be, and we're striving to be this person we want to be, and we keep running into barriers. We keep falling back. We keep doing something that stops us being the human that God created us to be. And in that moment, we feel shame. Shame comes in many ways and is experienced in many ways. But where did shame come from? Let's turn to Genesis 2, verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he could name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the, God, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he had, take, he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, "'This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh.'" 
She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. They were naked, and they felt no shame. Humanity began, quite literally, bare in front of each other, and bear in front of God. They had nothing to hide and no reason to hide. They were open with each other and open with God. They were the best of humanity at that moment. They felt no shame. We weren't created with shame. We weren't created to feel shame. The very first thing that humanity experienced as a result of not listening to God was shame. The very first thing that Satan wanted us to experience was shame. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The very first consequence of sin was the covering up of self, was the not being open with each other, was hiding away from each other and hiding away from God. The sense of shame, the feeling of shame was a result of sin, and the feeling of shame has been present in humanity ever since. And in a lot of ways, the way we act because of shame is still the same. We cover up. We build walls. We don't allow ourselves to be open. We, we run and hide from God. The very thing that, Adam, that the serpent wanted for Adam and Eve in the garden is the very same thing that still keeps us separate today. Adam and Eve immediately covered up and immediately hid. And the consequences of their actions meant they were expelled from the garden. When the cool breeze, cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about the garden So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Later on in that chapter, then the man Adam and his wife Eve, because she would be named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who lived. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and Eve. And then he expels them from the garden. But even in the immediacy of humanity choosing themselves over God, choosing their way over God's way, choosing knowledge and power over love and relationship, God still showed love and concern for them. Adam and Eve grabbed fig leaves to hide themselves because of their shame. God knew what they were feeling. And although there was now a price to pay for their actions, God didn't want their price to be one of living in shame. Verse 21 tells us, the Lord God made clothing from animal skins. He made better coverings 
than what humanity could grab. He didn't want shame to be something that was going to limit the relationships between human and human and human and God. God did what he could do to alleviate some of that shame. But shame had seeped into the human psyche, and shame continues there today. Now hear me. Please hear me. Feeling shame is not sin. Feeling shame is not sin. We can feel shame as a result of things we've done that are sin, but feeling shame is not sin. But it is something that will lead us to hide from ourselves, hide from community, and hide from God. And if we allow, if we allow shame to be a feeling that guides and controls us, shame will be something that hides us and something that stops us from being the people that God has created us to be. Because we weren't created to be hidden behind man-made walls, we were created to be in relationship with each other. And real relationships aren't ones governed by walls, by half-truths, by keeping things hidden. And this is what shame does to us. It makes us hide. John 8 tells a story of Jesus returning. He's returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman before him who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of a crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Don't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. There's a lot to unpack in this passage. And some theologians, some commentators look at the things in the story and, and they, they just want you to know this is a setup. This whole thing is a setup to catch Jesus. How do you catch someone in the act of adultery? They they probably, possibly, let's go, let's go possibly, sent this man in because they know who this woman is. But their main goal is to catch Jesus out. So they're sacrificing this woman. She's caught in the act of adultery. We heard nothing about the guy. The guy gets away. There's two that play the adultery game in this story. But only the woman is hauled before, and, and, and these men bring her. A lot of commentators say they bring her straight from the catch. Hauled in front of Jesus, wearing exactly the same clothes as Adam and Eve were before they knew they needed fig leaves. They have brought her here, dehumanizing her in front of a crowd, bare, exposed to all, to trap Jesus. But in that, they're heaping shame on her. They're bringing embarrassment. They're exposing her to the community, telling everyone who she is and what she is. Also, they could, or all of this, so they could take Jesus down a notch or two. 
They didn't care who they exposed or how they made people feel. They didn't care who they were dehumanizing. And Jesus responds to them by writing something in the ground. But whatever he wrote wasn't enough for them. They kept demanding an answer. And so Jesus relents and he gives these hypocrites an answer. He says, okay, you're right. Moses' law says kill her. So do it. As long as you haven't broken any of Moses' law, and if you haven't broken one of Moses' law, go get her. And then he stoops down and writes some more. Some, some commentators suggest he starts writing out their names and their sins, which is what leads them to skulk away. These men who had dehumanized this woman just so they could get to Jesus now feel a bit sheepish. And they walk away. They leave her there and they leave Jesus there. Can you imagine that moment for the woman, shamed, embarrassed, naked, dehumanized? Can you imagine what Jesus, how he looks at her? I imagine his clothes, his eyes clothe her because he loves her. He looks in her and he rehumanizes her. He says, where are your accusers? They're all gone. Does no one condemn you? No. He takes away the shame. He takes away the embarrassment. He takes away the actions of sin. And then he challenges her to go and live a life worthy of this rehumanizing. Go and sin no more. Go and stop doing stuff that makes you a lesser human. Don't even one of them condemn you. No, neither do I. Go and sin no more. This mirrors the story from the garden. The shame she would have felt being open. Jesus didn't shame her. He loved her and he restored her. And then he commanded her to go and live a different life, and he did it with love, and he did it with compassion. He restored her humanity, the same humanity that those who say they follow God's laws had taken. He took her shame, and he responded with love. When you stand in front of God, when you let yourself be real and true and naked in front of him, don't let the feelings that Satan brought into the world control your response. Don't let shame stop you from being who you are meant to be. Don't let others shame you into being a lesser human than you are created to be. Let Jesus' words, let Jesus' actions, let Jesus' love be what defines you, be what restores you, and be what guides you. Jesus' life was lived to restore our humanity, to restore the brokenness that came as a result of eating the fruit. And it wasn't just shame that Jesus came to eliminate. He came to eliminate the gap between humanity and God. He came to show us how life was meant to be lived and could be lived when you're guided by and filled by Holy Spirit. And through his teachings in life, he showed us how he was restoring humanity. And what humans can look like when they live a life devoted to him. But there was always a sac also a sacrifice that came in Jesus' life. 
For the wages of sin is death, Paul tells us. And humanity had sinned and someone had to make the payment. Now from the time of the beginning, people had been coming to the priest and bringing doves or cattle or sheep every year. They were bringing this to atone for what had been done that year. But because of what Jesus did, because of Jesus' life and death, we don't need to. We don't need to bring Pastor Gary the doves or the lamb every year. We get to look to Jesus. We get to see his sacrifice. We get to look at his death and resurrection and remember that that was our sacrifice. That is our atonement. That is him saying, where are your accusers? Do they not condemn you? Neither do I. Go and sin no more. This is what we come to the communion table to remember. We remember the time that Jesus walked to the hill, carrying his cross, receiving the payment for our sin. For the wages of sin is death. He paid our price. He paid our tax. He paid it all. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life because we also remember that after paying the price of death, he beat death. He rose again and rose to create a place for us to dwell with him forever. Jesus came to show the best of humanity, to restore your humanity, and to give hope to humanity to look forward to an eternity with him. Very soon the band's going to come and, and we're going to come and remember communion. We're going to remember his act on the cross. And when Jesus is giving communion to the disciples, he says, take this and remember me. And he's not asking you just to remember him in your head. It's to remember him the same way you remember your wallet when you go out or you remember your phone or your handbag. Take him with you. Remember to grab him. Remember to clothe him. Remember to allow his humanity to go with you as you go. Take the bread that symbolizes his life, his body. Take the cup that symbolizes his blood spilt for you. And take it and remember that he came to restore. He doesn't condemn. Come with the love that only he can give to you. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining with us today. If you'd like to know more information on the church or reach out to one of the pastors, please visit our website www.gebc.org.nz. Hope you have a great day.